So since 2002, we've been doing climate science. We opened the Atmosphere Gallery in 2010. Uh, we've had two million visitors to that so far. And there's a big climate program linked with that. And we've got lots of sponsors like Shell, Siemens, Bank of America, Garfield Western. In the case of Unlocking Lovelock, we've been very lucky to get help from people like Sir Crispin Tickell and Vivian uh, Westwood. And what I, the one place I'd like to start is actually in the museum, Jim, because mm -hmm. in 1925, when you were six years old, you paid your first visit here, and that's what sort of got the science bug going, the curiosity going. That's right, Roger, yes. It, 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 I can remember it so well, even though it's nearly 90 years ago. Um, my mother and father were art freaks, and uh, small boys are not usually terribly interested in the kind of art they have in the V&A Museum across the road. But uh, uh, we lived in Brixton, on the, and on winter Sundays we would often come up to the museums it was a thing Londoners did in, way back in those days. And uh, my father was a white old bird, and he knew I'd be bored to tears by the uh, art museum. He said, why don't you go over there? They've got a lot of engines in that place, you can, and you can press buttons and make them work. And I did, and it was great. <laughs> Never looked back. But the, what, the, what specifically captured your... A, you know, interest. I mean, I talked to Mary Beard the other day, and she was inspired by a fire alarm. I don't really know why. But when she was seven, you know, what 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 particular exhibits got got you intrigued? I think, well, as I said, in those days, steam engines, for some reason, were an enormous fascination to to young boys. They were the high tech things that went around. There was a flying Scotsman used to dash past. We uh, I'd previously lived at Letchworth, uh, north of London, and it, it, it would go through Hitchin Station at 100 miles an hour, and it was something you could go and watch. And that was great stuff in those days. Uh, so, naturally, I was interested in that aspect of it, but it didn't take me long to start wandering around the galleries and find that there was an enormous amount of other things. And uh, I found... I learned the science that's kept me busy in my lifetime, not by being taught it, but by going to places like the Science Museum or to libraries and getting out books and reading on it. And I did this from six years old onwards. I didn't uh, wait until... Uh, in fact, science was not taught, of course, to primary school children in those days. I should say we're, we're obviously here to celebrate your new book, A Rough Ride to the Future, and you single out um, Thomas Newcomen's uh, steam engine, uh, and we've got lots on Newcomen out, out there in the uh, in the energy gallery uh, as being the launch of a of a new era in evolution. Um, do, do you think there was was the seed of that idea planted even in the six year old Jim Lovelock? Oh, I, I, I wish I could say yeah. <laughs> it's a lovely but, thought, but, but no way. But I think it's going to cause a lot of troubles. It'll even cause trouble to you. I mean, you're going to have to decide which is the more important, James Watt or, or, yeah. or, or, or what's his name, Newcomen. Yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> uh, the, <laughs> I think we give Watt more attention at the moment. But well, the, they're both important. And, uh, but now that we've got politics coming into it, with Scotland possibly splitting off, you'll have to be very careful. <laughs> <laughs> or you'll be caught up in that battle. Oh, we're not going to go anywhere near Scottish devolution okay. tonight. Don't worry, any, no. everyone. Um, but there are so many sort of remarkable stories about, um, you, for example, I think the, perhaps people won't realise that you started off doing research on the common cold at the National Institute of Medical Research in Mill Hill. And not, you, not really, no. It was on... Oh, I've it got was, that wrong. <laughs> I, I, it, it's never been made clear, so I don't see why I should be guilty about that. Um, no, I, I started my first work at a proper scientific lab, the National Institute for Medical Research, as a, even before I had got my degree, as a, but as a young, wet-behind-the-ears graduate. And uh, this was in World War 
last world, uh, last war, World War Two, and one of the great worries of the government would that there would be a repeat of the flu epidemic of uh, World War One, and uh, that they were con mostly concerned about the overcrowded conditions in the London underground shelters once bombing started, and they were. Do you have no idea? The air was so bad in the tube shelters in London, that the oxygen content of the air went down to 13%. Uh, uh, this caused enormous complaints. It didn't, doesn't bother people. You can breathe at 13%, but you can't light a cigarette. Uh, and, that, <laughs> uh, uh, and that really caused a riot. Anyway, but we were down there to look for bacteria and viruses and things like that that were floating in the air. And as you can well imagine, it, it, it was pretty dense and pretty horrific. The black, it would have been a black hole of Calcutta if it hadn't, we, we didn't have such a cooler climate. I think I must be thinking of your first paper in the BMJ, wasn't it? On, yeah, or something like that. And I'm sure that was something to do with cold transmission. Um, um, don't, don't think it was. I think the first paper I had there was about uh, the, the bacteria in the um, underground and other places. Okay, yeah. okay. And you also, you came across Frank Hawking, Stephen Hawking's father, and there was a brilliant story you told me about your first encounter with, with Stephen Hawking. Oh, yes. Well, Frank Hawking was the Institute's sort of in residence physician. He, that was not his research project. I don't know what it was, but I think it was something in some obscure branch of biochemistry in those days. Um, it, the, you, this is, it's probably important in history, but I, I just don't know the answer to it now. Uh, but he had to treat me because one of the odd jobs we had was designing there were hundreds of wartime jobs, but one of the odd jobs was designing equipment for soldiers in the field and sailors and so on to protect them against burns, because they're, they're, burns are nasty casualties in warfare, and they're terribly common. And uh, um, so we had to do it. Do you remember seeing pictures of those white helmets people, um, men had on ships during right. the war to protect against flash and flame. We, that was the kind of thing that we were, we were designing and doing. And to, to get to know about it properly, we had to find an experimental animal. They wanted us to use rabbits uh, because uh, uh, shave the skin of them, anaesthetize them, of course, and then burn them and see what um, uh, protection you could have. But neither my colleague nor I liked that idea at all. And uh, we both decided to burn ourselves rather than rabbits. And uh, it, it was an intensely painful process. Burning. Have you still got the scars? Probably, if you go look <laughs> um, Sorry, I shouldn't laugh really, but it's, it's only about one centimetre uh, diameter uh, circles of, burnt by radiant heat. Well, um, a, a, a source of sufficient energy. And uh, anyway, they hurt like hell, but only for a week. And at the end of the week, for some extraordinary reason, I suppose it's your brain realises you're doing something exceedingly daft, and the pain was switched off, and from then onwards, we couldn't, even neither of us could feel any sense of uh, burning. It was just a sense of pressure. And did, did this lead to practical applications in the... Well, in the field or just know, pure pain. these guys who tread on red-hot coals may <laughs> put it to practice to earn a living, living but uh, I wouldn't recommend it as a way of life. And I seem to remember the micro... They're, they're very, so, uh, it's so hard to cover all the things that, that, that you've done in your career, but certainly the microwave oven features some, somewhere reanimating hamsters. I seem that to remember you used to freeze hamsters. Now, what was that all about? Oh, um, it all started because two biologists at the National Institute for Medical Research, when it moved to Mill Hill in North London, that was a very famous lab. It was, it's still, the, the building's still there, incredibly famous. It just spawned Nobel Prizes by the dozen. And one should never forget that it was a government lab. 
I don't think there's any government lab in the world that's been so productive. And uh, there's a very simple reason I'd like to bring up here. Sorry to drift into politics. No, no. But uh, the, the reason that government lab worked, whereas almost no others ever do, uh, that they always get top-heavy with people, is that it was responsible only to the monarch and to no one else, to no, no politician or department of state. And that meant that only 5% of the income was spent on administration or, or managers or anything like that. You had to do it all yourself. And this worked like an absolute dream. Anyway, that's, that's a story <laughs> to take home with you. Um, uh, I think that's a theme we, we must investigate because I'm, I'm fascinated what pushed you to, to leave the kind of established system and, and to go it alone, really. Um, well, they stopped. It was the civil service took over. It, it was no longer like that from about 1960 onwards, so I could see no future there. But that wasn't the real reason I left. It was an offer from NASA. And this was to work on the Viking... Um, no, no, it was much before Viking. It was the, they'd only just started. Uh, NASA was founded in, I forget what, just about th uh, three years after the Russians sent the Sputnik up into space, which scared the pants off the Americans. And um, they could see bombs coming over on missiles and so on and so forth. That started NASA. NASA, as a kind of open publicity front wanted uh, to have rockets being used to explore the planets. I mean, it's exciting stuff, that, and it's practical astronomy in, mm -hmm. in many ways. And uh, what they needed above all were exceedingly small and simple bits of hardware that they could send on their, their rockets to the Mars or the Moon or somewhere like that to analyse the soil or the atmosphere mm -hmm. or whatever it was and learn more about the planet. And it so happened that at uh, um, Mill Hill where I'd been working, I'd invented a whole slew of tiny, exceedingly sensitive devices. And so uh, I, I was in a sense snapped up by NASA. But it wasn't, they didn't have much trouble dragging me because like most kids, I'd not only been to science museum, I'd read science fiction. Uh, I, I was immersed in that sort of world, and the chance to get involved with, as an experimenter on lunar and planetary missions, that was something I just couldn't refuse. But you used that as an opportunity to leave the NIMR. That, well, an honourable opportunity. You see, the I, people were leaving because of the brain drain. American firms had come over and offered people three times the salary they were getting. And it was very hard for an awful lot of scientists to say, oh, well, to hell with you, I, I like it here best. And uh, we lost an awful lot of our best scientists that way. Um, but that, that's the way of the world. But in my case, it wasn't that. It was the excitement of going uh, uh, to, to, to work with NASA. That, and in any case, NASA didn't offer huge salaries just to consultancy. But you were, you were working in Houston, I seem to remember at the time, or one of the American uh, laboratories. That's right. Um, well, it so happened that, uh, as, as I say, NASA were not very rich then and couldn't offer anything, but um, Baylor, which is a university in Houston, Texas, College of Medicine, they offered me a, a monumental salary to go there as a, a research professor doing this kind of thing, so I, I went. And what about the genesis of your home laboratory? When, when was that formally up and running back in, in the UK? Well, my first wife and I never really intended to stay in America. Uh, and after about three years, we decided we were missing England as it was then far too much. Mm. And uh, we decided to go back. And uh, I'd accumulated enough cash during the time there to set up my own lab in a village in, uh, near Salisbury called Bowerchort. And uh, this I did. There's wonderful stories from your children about they, they, they knew that the lab was a slightly scary 
dangerous. Didn't you have radioactivity signs hanging up oh, in the yes. windows? Well, things, there's a lot you to could... scare off burglars as much as anything else, yeah, I seem to that, remember. That, that, that was the hope, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's extraordinary, but you, you could still get sources of funding, even though you were not part of a formal... Um, you know, infrastructure linked to a formal research institute. I, I find that, that amazing, really. Well, it would be amazing now, and I think it would be a hundred times harder to do the same thing now. But remember, way back in the, uh, after World War II, and up until about 1960, only a tiny percentage of the population went to university. Mm. Uh, and there weren't that many scientists around. I would think there's only about a twentieth as many as there are now. So the competition was negligible. And uh, one of the things I find, if you, if you had any bright ideas and could invent things, that big, big outfits like uh, firms like, as you found, like Shell, for example. Now, the head of science for Shell at, in 1960 ish was uh, Lord Rothschild, mm -hmm. and he was a biologist. Most people don't know that, uh, and an FRS as well. And uh, he offered me a job. He said, would, would I like to be his science advisor? Just come up and visit him once a month and chat, and that was it. <laughs> uh, and that gave me my start. <laughs> And it's of course, a world. it's much easier. I can't. That, I, but but you, you must feel that must mourn the fact that um, you've accomplished so much as an independent scientist, and yet today the mantra is interdisciplinary science. It's cooperation. It's it's teamwork. It's peer review. It's committees. And while you're talking about it, let's have a committee to regulate the committees. Do you, do you do you ever see the opportunity arising at the moment for uh, for a reasonable seasoning of true independent scientists to emerge again? I hope, so. I hope there will be. Uh, you know, one goes through changes and cycles. I'm quite convinced that, and indeed this is what my book's about to quite a large extent, that the important things that have driven uh, advances in the world have not been science, but invention. Uh, and we've never been very clear in our minds about what's the difference between a scientist and an inventor. And uh, I know a fair bit about this. And the one thing to keep clearly in your mind is to start wondering, why was it that the Chinese, the Romans, the Greeks, the Arabs, the Mayans, or any other civilization ever broke through the barrier and had railways? Uh, driven by steam, uh, pulled by steam engines, or steam engines to pump water out of mines. They got so far, but everything had to be horse. Uh, uh, that was about their maximum mm -hmm. power source they could go. I think some places had elephants, but uh, uh, <laughs> uh, um, there's the steam engine, the, the mechanical, that side of it, never broke through. Mm -hmm. And it took a single inventor, Mr. Newcomen, who was a blacksmith who lived in the village of Dartmouth in Devon in 1712 uh, uh, to answer a need from a friend who lived in the um, Midlands, a place called Dudley, who had a coal mine, and uh, they couldn't use, get the coal up because it was flooded. Well, couldn't he think of some way of getting the water out? And uh, dear old Newcomen invented his beam engine, and off they went. They, they never looked back. So, you know, the, the key to invention, the mother of invention, is need and, and exactly. necessity. So tell us, for, for me, the most important object we've got in unlocking uh, Lovelock is the electron capture detector. And that's, that's something that's got an extraordinary... It's a very dull-looking widget, forgive me, Jim, but it's it just is. got the most extraordinary... Maybe it's a thing of beauty for you, but I think for most people, you think, well, it's quite unremarkable-looking. And it's got its roots in the 50s, hasn't it, in your research at the NIMR. Talk, talk me through how, how that idea took flight and then the implications, because they are quite extraordinary. Well, everything... This is what was so lovely about Mill, Mill Hill as a scientific institute. I, I think such a place no longer exists anywhere in the world. 
Um, the, there weren't many scientists, uh, and uh, we would meet together in, not formally, but just after lunch in a coffee room and chat, have ideas. Uh, and there, there was no disciplinary barriers. Chemists would talk to biologists mm -hmm. or physicists would talk to uh, you know, zoologists and so on. The whole thing was a mismatch. mismatch. And uh, people would say, hey, George, have you got an idea? I'm in, stuck on a problem here. Mm -hmm. and, and this was the way it was all done. And, I mean, at that time, I think they, they pioneered gas chromatography and they needed some more sensitive detectors. And I think, was, was, was that the, the necessity that was driving the ECD? Absolutely. You see, a, a dear friend of mine, now sadly dead, was Archer Martin, who invented all kinds of chromatography. Chromatography is a way, it's a silly word, chromatography. It dates back to its historical origin. But it's just a way of separating chemicals uh, almost perfectly. You can even separate isotopes, it's so, so selective. And uh, it opened up the whole of the discovery of DNA, RNA, all of that mm -hmm. kind of thing. It opened up industry, petroleum industry suddenly found that they knew what petrol was made of. Mm -hmm. Prior to that, they had no idea at all, really. They knew it was hydrocarbons, but they didn't know which ones or what properties they had, and chromatography suddenly gave them the way to separate them. And it all depended on things called columns, down which you passed uh, a mixture of substances, and they got separated as pure, absolutely pure items. Now, the problem was, Archer's invention of chromatography worked like a dream, but he couldn't detect uh, anything very sensitively. And this limited the, the, the method enormously. Like in biology, the, 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 the concentration of important things circulating in your blood is very low. I mean, you'll be down parts per million is quite often a lot. Parts per billion will do all sorts of things. And uh, you had to have sensitive means of detecting. Well, Archer didn't have any. And it happened quite by chance. I was bothered about... Uh, the, the, these frozen hamsters that we were bringing back to life. Um, I knew the frozen hamsters would come back again. Well, they, they, I knew they'd they come did, in handy. These the biologists had found a way to do it. And um, I was working with them. And I, I discovered that it was the sensitivity to freezing depended, and damaged by it, depended a lot on the lipids, mm -hmm. the, you know, the fatty materials in the membranes of the cells. And uh, so I made some samples and took them up to Archer Martin and said, is there any chance you could analyse the fatty acid compositions of these uh, uh, hamster um, tissues for me? And he said, well, where is it? And I said, well, it's at the bottom of that. He said, how much? And I said, about 100 micrograms. He said, hopeless. You'll have to go away and work for months and bring me back milligrams of the stuff. Yeah. I couldn't even touch it with that. And then he grinned all over his face because he was like that, and that's how we became friends. He said, of course, you could invent a better detector for me. <laughs> now, um, <laughs> this, is, this is all an inventor needs. <laughs> and not only that, but such was the, that institute in those days. One by, ran, ran by a wonderful director, Sir Charles Harrington, mm -hmm. that... You could just wander about and do anything like that. There was no line management. What are you doing there? Is it on your yeah. pl research plan? No, you just did it. And uh, I, I dropped the freezing hamsters and everything and just went straight <laughs> into uh, low e electron physics. That's a lovely image to conjure with, these dropped frozen uh, hamsters. Yeah, but <laughs> But that, that then, if we move forward in, the, in that story, you've got an amazingly sensitive detector, and even more extraordinary, it seems to be brilliant at detecting unpleasant, nasty compounds, or things that we're worried about, like CFCs. Well, can I, there's a bit more detail to it. How are you doing? We're, doing, we're doing, fine, yeah. doing fine, actually. Okay. Um, I answered Arsha's problem by uh, a rather lovely bit of physics, which was great fun to me. 
uh, it, it wasn't commonly known that the rare gases, you know, things like argon and neon and helium and so on, that don't react with any chemicals, do form peculiar states called metastable states. They're the triplet uh, excited states. And uh, these are quite relatively stable. They, you can, uh, they last for seconds in, at uh, ordinary pressures. And I found a way of making argon metastable atoms. And if these bounced against any of Archer's organic compounds coming down in his columns, it gave a wonderful electrical signal. It just turned the compound into um, ions. And you could easily measure it with a simple electrometer. And uh, so that solved Archer's problem. But there was a snag. There were certain classes of compounds that gave negative signals. They seemed to be taking the, mm. the, the, the way. And I got curious about this. And I realized that uh, low energy electrons were involved in it. And I remember going to Sir Charles Harrington and saying, look, I know this is an institute for medical research, but w would you mind very much if I spent a few months working on uh, the, the physics of uh, low energy electrons? which was something nobody ever worked on. They were only interested in ones that went whiz-bang, fast. <laughs> and the idea of slow, room-temperature ones was not, not on the agenda of most physicists anywhere. And he said, I don't care what you do, as long as it's good science. <laughs> what a good boss. I want a boss. That, 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 that's right. <laughs> uh, and uh, so I, I played around with this thing. Uh, uh, and out of it came uh, the electron capture detector, a device that exploited this tendency of very slow-moving electrons to react with nasty substances. Um, not all nasty, it, they, it, they react with a few good things, but that's e exploited by the body in its own, own way for, for its benefits. And of course you, you used it um I think you, you dragooned your daughter into being a lab assistant. Wasn't Christine your lab assistant on the west coast of Ireland taking uh, measurements of what was supposedly clean air coming off That's the Atlantic? That's her story. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, I think she, uh, she loved going out there. It's a gorgeous part of Europe, the far west coast of Ireland. But it's the only place I knew where there's clean air. But of no. course it wasn't clean, according to the... Uh, well, I know, the, the, the clean air in the sense it wasn't like it was <coughs> last week no. around here. The, 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 the smog didn't get there very often. But it did get there once in a while when the wind blew strongly enough from Europe to carry it all over. But, uh, and that's what Christine was doing there, was helping and you, me. And you found evidence of CFCs, um, which was, must have come as quite a surprise to everybody that they were so persistent, which really led us on that long story towards the Montreal Protocol and all that's the other right. developments. That's right. You see, uh, one of the class of compounds that would react with the, in the electron capture detector uh, were the CFCs. And the oddity there is they're exceedingly harmless things, uh, 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 sort of just around. As you, when people use spray cans with CFCs in, they were in no danger of being poisoned mm -hmm. by them. They were about the least poisonous things you could have. And indeed, some of the fluorocarbon-type compounds are so non-toxic, they're less toxic than water. And uh, you can put them in your blood, up to 30% in the, uh, the Japanese have done. And uh, they will serve, instead of haemoglobin, to carry blood, uh, to carry oxygen. Uh, to the tissues without harming you at all. Now, there aren't many less toxic things than, uh, the, than that. But, of course, had an, un uh, an impact on the, atmospheric the, chemistry. That's right. Uh, the, the, a young American, Malin, Mario Molina, I think, was a principal actor here, discovered that they, they could uh, break down in the stratosphere and release the chlorine that they contain, and the chlorine would destroy the ozone atoms that were up there catalytically. So one chlorine might destroy as many as 100 ozone atoms. And they were therefore a threat to the ozone layer, which is alleged to protect us against the ultraviolet that comes in from the sun. Now and that the, led to the Montreal Protocol. 
So that's an extraordinary story. The, the first time we've really realised we're damaging the Earth's climate and we've intervened to, to do something about it. But I think it also, didn't it, um, contribute to your ideas, your emerging ideas about Gaia theory and about how, uh, you know, the Earth as a superorganism, I know there's, there's various incarnations of Gaia and so on. We're all familiar with the story of how William Golding was your neighbour and helped you come up with this wonderful phrase. Um, one thing I'm less familiar with is, is Lynn Margulis, who's a very, very well known for her work on endosymbiosis, the idea that you know, the cells in your body have got little power packs in, and that's, they're probably the, the, the relic of some ancient microbial merger hundreds of millions of years ago. And I, I've always wondered whether her endosymbiosis ideas um, whether, her, whether her contribution to Gaia was, was that writ large in some extraordinary way or whether it's got a more, even more complicated, bound to be more complicated than that, I would have thought. No, Lynn was a great colleague, a great biologist, and will be properly recognised for her discovery of endosymbiosis because that, that is truly important. But actually, she came into the Gaia story Ooh, about seven years after its origin. Right. And uh, what, what, how the Gaia story started was when I was working at JPL, to, I got involved with the biologists there that were trying to find life on Mars. And their idea of finding life on Mars was to send automated culture laboratories to Mars to scrape around in the soil and see if they could grow bacteria from the soil. And... Uh, Somebody who must have been very mischievous let me loose at one of the biology meetings and I started asking very nasty questions like, how do you know the life on Mars is the same as the life here? And uh, they said, don't go away, go away. Life's the same everywhere in the universe. Surely you know that. I said, no, I don't. How do you know? Uh, it might be different up there. And... Uh, so they said, well, how are you detect life? So I said, I just read uh, Schrodinger's little book. I don't know whether you know it, that famous what Austrian physicist called What is Life? Yes. And he looked at the physics of life. And I said, well, what I'd look for would be a reduction in the entropy of the planet, not, a, mm. um, not for specific organisms. Because I said, if you landed your gadgetry on, even on the Antarctic, ice cap, you wouldn't find a thing and you might think the Earth didn't have any life on it. Um, so th this led to almost riots and um, uh, they were very... American scientists tend to be much more sporty than I'm afraid ours are. They tend to regard <laughs> science as a competitive sport which yeah. you play for prizes, not as a kind of... With a, as something you have a sense of wonder about and go, say, go, go off into the wilderness and look for things. Oh, there are plenty of exceptions in America, but there is a, a good school of vigorous, how can I put I it? I must say, I'm, I'm itching to ask you, though, do, do you, just, just to go to the life on Mars question, um, given the extremophiles on Earth, there seems to be quite, and given the fact there was water on Mars, there seems to be great confidence we will find life on Mars, and given the exchange of materials between planets, you know, through collisions and so on, what, what, if, if you were a betting man, what, what, would you, uh, what would you say? Well, I would have said, it'd be fair to say, if I had been a betting man in the 1970s, what would I have said? I'd have said there's not a chance of finding any life there. <laughs> now, and that was the result of your, your experiments, of course. Well, if you like, yes. Uh, but the, but the thing was, I got called to see the director at JPL or, or some very senior man called McGreblian. And he said, what are you doing upsetting all our biologists? It's cost NASA a fortune to hire all these people. Uh, and some of them are threatening to leave. Uh, you better tell me, what, what is it, your life detection experiment, uh, that uh, is so much better than a biologist one? He said, what do you intend to do? And I said, uh, well, I intend to look for an entropy reduction. He said, ha, ha, everybody knows what the, that that's just a cop-out. Um, and uh, he said, well, you've got, it was Tuesday. You have until Friday. Come to me fr on Friday with a practical 
thing that we could fly to Mars that will detect an entropy a reduction. A practical, not, not even a sketch on, a, on the back of an envelope. He actually wanted something that, that well, could do a Well, no, no, he, did, he wanted the idea okay. and the sketch, yes. No, he didn't want the hardware. Okay, that, that would have point. been tough, yeah. Um, it would have been tough, but uh, uh, I knew my job was on the line, so to speak, or not so much a job, because it wasn't a job, but my opportunity to work there at NASA was on the line. Because if I didn't succeed on Friday, I'd probably be out on my neck. And uh, it suddenly came to me on Thursday night. Well, it's dead easy. All you have to do is to analyse the composition of the Martian atmosphere and see what gases it's got in it. If they're capable of reacting with one another chemically so as to produce energy, you know, like methane and oxygen reacting in our, our atmosphere, then that's a sign there's life there because they couldn't have ha happened by just ordinary astronomy. Mm -hmm. No way you can get a reactive chemical mixture on a planetary atmosphere uh, by chance. It, it, it's got, something's got to put it there. And it, it, it then forced me to look back at the Earth uh, and see that the presence of methane, oxygen, nitrous oxide, all sorts of other gases in our atmosphere is a sure sign that we've got life on the planet. Uh, the oxygen alone is quite weird. I mean, yeah. it's a huge quantity. And uh, you can easily work out the sums. If you know the amount of oxygen, you know the amount of methane, you can say, well, something must be making so many billion tons of this every year and so many billion tons of that every year. Uh, what on earth is doing it? There's no other process but life can do it. But you slightly sidestep my question and... Mm -hmm. uh, that, that was in the 70s, but today, if, it would, if you... Well, that was the start of Gaia, you see, because uh, a few days later, I was in an office uh, that I shared with Carl Sagan, actually, uh, at JPL, and in marches an astronomer with a great bunch of papers in his arms. And uh, we said to him, what are you carrying? He said, oh, the complete analysis of the chemical composition of Mars and Venus's atmospheres. So my eyes lit up immediately. <laughs> and it was all got by infrared astronomy. There's a telescope in France look, that looked at the sky and found out just what was in the atmosphere. So you didn't need to go there. You could see it from the Earth. So when, I, I suppose that's what's confused me a bit. When you look at the genesis of Gaia, you, it, the name was coined in 68, wasn't it? And then I think it really hit public consciousness uh, with an article in my old magazine, New Scientist, in 75. Right. And presumably there was... A long spell in between. A long spell in between where there must have been... Was, was, it, was, was it particularly discussed? Did people ignore it or shrug it off? Or Well, let me sort of... I remember Richard Dawkins attacking it, for example. That's right. That, that, that was great fun. <laughs> <laughs> Um, no, we stayed good friends. I th there's nothing like a good, uh, good opponent, that, especially a good scientist, too. And I'm sure he thought he was right. And I thought, He's always right, isn't he? <laughs> um, but no, it was fun. But let me go back to the beginning, because uh, instantly it flashed in my mind when I saw that Mars and Venus were all CO2 and virtually nothing else. That, well, obviously, they were dead. There's no life mm -hmm. there, so why waste money sending experiments to find life there? And uh, then it dawned on me, but the Earth's atmosphere must be regulated. You couldn't have things making oxygen and me methane in an unregulated mm -hmm. way. Why, damn it all, the methane might increase largely and the whole atmosphere blow up. I mean, it really could if things went wrong. Uh, so, uh, it, 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 when the idea came to me that something must be regulating it, I blurted it out. There must be a, a, a mechanism regulating the um, uh, uh, atmosphere of the Earth. And Carl Sagan said, oh, that's a lot of nonsense. How could there possibly be anything like that? And uh, then he sort of drew back a moment. He said, but hold it a minute. He said, one of the great questions we astronomers have is how on earth has the Earth stayed at the same temperature, more or less, mm -hmm. same climate, right from the beginning up until now, suitable for life? And it immediately dawned on me that if the life can regulate the atmosphere, then it can regulate the climate. 
because you interfere with the climate and it changes the interfere with the atmosphere, it changes the climate, as we're discovering. And so we've got these, this idea of feedback cycles, and That's I think right. if, we, if we wind forward to, I think it was 81, you came up with the Daisy World model to try well, to... Then came in between, you see. Right, uh, okay. Now it so happened, it's all intricate. Uh, Carl Sagan was Lynn's first husband. Oh, I didn't realise that. Father of her first two children. And uh, um, they separated more or less amicably, and she married somebody called Margulis later, and had, uh, and had two more children with, by him. Uh, but um, they kept in touch. And Lynn's own work on bacteria got her very interested in oxygen in the atmosphere. And she said to Carl, do you know anybody who knows anything about the genesis of oxygen in the atmosphere and all the rest of it? And he said, well, the best person to ask, why don't you ask Jim Lovelock? He's in the lab here. And so she sent me a letter inviting me to go and uh, visit her lab in Boston. But that was not until about 1972. It was a long time afterwards. Mm. And the moment we got together, we realised that we, it was, we were soulmates scientifically, although not otherwise. And then, uh, was it was Andrew Watson who got involved with Daisy World? He was a World? student of mine. Okay. So well, you had students said, in, your in, in your... Independence. Yeah. Well, there's a long story there. Um, yeah. Well, not too long. Uh, I, I tried <laughs> to publish a paper on this, all this stuff I mentioned at the Jet Propulsion Labs. and the, It was called A Physical Basis for Life Detection. And it was published by Nature. But I, when I tried to send it to Nature, Nature bounced it back straight away, saying... We don't publish papers from home addresses. They mostly come from cranks. <laughs> <laughs> so a friend of mine, Peter Felgit, an astronomer, said, oh, don't bother about that. He said, I'm a professor at Reading. Why don't you take a visiting professorship here and then you can send it out from the university. <laughs> so so, that, so that, that, that's how I got, got landed with a student. And, of course, you worked on Daisy World and that, that was... Um wonderful, simple simulation with the black daisies absorbing solar energy. Well, that was to answer Richard Dawkins' questions. You know, there's just no way for, uh, for life to regulate the environment. If it could, it meant that all the species would have to meet annually on top of Mount Ararat and decide what next year's climate is going to be, <laughs> which is hard. You know how Richard... I can almost hear Richard that, saying that, yes. That sort of thing. I don't know, to be fair on Richard, that was the one he chose, but it was something like that. So you, you did the Daisy World simulations, just showing the, the principle of regulation through the you know, population of white daisies increasing, reflecting more sunlight into space, or black daisies increasing, absorbing more sunlight. And it, it, it intrigues me that, just, just to wind forward to today, of course, we put a great deal of faith in very elaborate climate models, but yeah. uh, you're still quite sceptical, aren't you, about how, wh whether we, we, we've really over... Uh, we're, we're overconfident in our ability to predict too far off. You're right, Roger. I think, think we, we are overconfident. And the problem is, you see, I'm half an inventor and half a scientist. And uh, I know that the invention is largely intuitive. Like the ECD, for example, mm. electron capture detector. It took me, oh, a couple of days to invent it. And people were using it all over the world. But it took me seven years to find out how it worked. Mm. <laughs> now, that was the science, you see. The invention was quite separate. And uh, if I very want to be very rude, I often compare scientists to sidewalk superintendents. You know, the people that stand at a hole in the road and tell everybody what's going on down there. But they're not responsible for having dug the hole. So you're, you're pretty... You're a bit dismissive of the... I mean, I suppose, given the way that you, you've done your science, the idea of a consensus statement drawn up by hundreds of scientists from dozens of countries is probably a bit of an anathema. Well, it is. You never have consensus in proper science. It's all wrong. And it's the trouble with the IPCC, there are far too many politicians in it. Mm -hmm. 
and uh, they have to have it that way around, and that's the only way the funds and money will get around. But that's not my main worry, reasons for scepticism, because the climate scientists, particularly the ones we have in Britain at the Hadley Centre, uh, at the, the Met Office at Exeter, are some of the very best in the world and uh, are responsible for quite a bit of the IPCC. And I don't disagree with an awful lot of what they say and do. But what I do know is that the heat that comes in from the sun is absorbed by the three main compartments of the Earth. It's absorbed by the atmosphere, which causes the climate, but it's also absorbed by the ocean and by the land surface. Now the uh, well, land being the third compartment. Now the ocean is holds nearly a thousand times as much heat as the atmosphere can, so that an increase in heat uh, uh, the, uh, coming in from outside, which is the effect of the greenhouse to keep heat back, stop mm -hmm. it escape, escape the cooling escaping. Uh, that is nearly all absorbed in the ocean. And it'll take an awful long time for enough heat, uh, for the worst greenhouse effect, to put the temperatures up to um, levels that, that are going to worry us unduly. And so I think the early panic we all had about it was probably unjustified. I certainly feel you're more... I mean, the fact you say a rough ride to the future, I mean, it's, mm -hmm. it's not going to be easy... But you seem, you, it, this book feels much more optimistic than your last book, where you were worried about a sudden flip in, in the global climate. Yes, that, uh, that, that's true. I think we were all, all of us, good scientists, me, everyone, made a big mistake. Uh, we took the, the results that the Russians and the French had gathered from the ice cores in Antarctica, which showed how the atmosphere and the climate varied over the last million years, nearly. Uh, and it, there was a simple linear relationship between CO2 and temperature mm -hmm. in the Earth. And we said, oh, this is, now we know that. We, we, we can easily calculate if we burn all this coal and oil, we're going to have that much more CO2 in the air, and therefore the temperature will be that. It, it was that easy, in a way. What they left out was that in the Ice Age, yeah, it was Gaia's atmosphere. Uh, now it's our atmosphere, and it's a pretty dirty one. Yeah. If you looked at it a few days ago, it was unbearably dirty. And that, of course, alters the whole picture. It reflects quite a bit of the sunlight back to space. And um, it, it, it's much more complicated than we ever thought it was. But so you're... I mean, there's actually quite a futuristic note in the book. In that, sure. I think I think just for one one last comment before we open it up to the audience, that um, uh, there are people like Ray Kurzweil who are talking mm -hmm. about don't downloading brains and so on. So um, you, you you've got a kind of Gaian view where humanity in its current form might well uh, be extinguished, as so many other species have been, but could live on. In, in the form of information, which seems still a bit wild to me, I must confess. Well, it is for the present time, uh, but I'm speculating about, like astronomers do, you know, they talk about uh, later on the, the sun will swell up and be a red giant. Yes. Well, nobody challenges that. Uh, <laughs> and they're on to a good thing, I think they're right. Um, but I'm talking about that sort of period, okay. looking ahead, not, not the next... Um, Millennia uh, at all. I think Kurzweil's very uh, got, got a very short time he scale, is a short his, time scale. which I must yes. say I do find a bit incredible. Exciting stuff. So there we are. We've glimpsed the uh, the future. You are all going to turn into clouds of information if you can hang <coughs> around for another few tens of millions of years. Um, now it would be great just to get a few questions for the audience in in the last uh, few minutes before the book signing. Um, does anyone want to? Pitch in with the first question. We've got a roving microphone, I think, as well. Or you could try shouting. We've got a gentleman over here. Um, I don't know if we've got a mic to hand here. Oh, go on. Speak loudly, actually. And uh... yeah, I was just wondering um, what James's uh, views, recent views are on population and human population extinction. 
So the human population explosion, does that, is that part of the Gaian hypothesis? Very much so. Um, I think it's a good question, that one. In, in, in my book, the, one of the top topics that interested me a great deal is, is there a link between climate change, uh, population growth, uh, the, the economics uh, uh, of the uh, changes, uh, and a whole pile of things like that, or, or are they each separate individuals, things like that? And it looks more and more and more of it's a linked, linked together thing. And moreover, the reason I'm a bit optimistic, it looks as if they're approaching a steady state. Neither, n none of the, uh, the growth, of both of temperature or of uh, population or of monetary instability, are, are worsening off. They're, they're levelling off. In fact, the economists hate it. They'd rather, they love growth. I mean, in fact, they <laughs> seem to think the world couldn't exist without it. Um, uh, but uh, the world itself, and Gaia, much prefers a nice, comfortable, steady state. So do you think we're going to have a new field of Gaian economics then evolving? It would be interesting That'll to be see. That would be good, wouldn't it? Yeah. Now, let's have another question from the audience. Again, I have great difficulty seeing beyond the lights over there, actually. I don't know if it's my glasses. There's a question just here. There we are. Um, is it on? Okay. So I was organizing recently a session at the European Geoscience uh, Union. And in the description of this session, I was making a reference to Gaia. I was very excited about this. And the senior um, scientist who was taking care of this said, oh, no, 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 I'm Guillermo. No, no, Guillermo, you cannot make a reference to Gaia. It is not a scientific well, concept. It yeah, that's raised. right. It's, it's the, the, um, uh, he, the, he was He talked about Gaia to a colleague, and he said it's not a scientific con concept. I guess the polite way is to say it's just merely a hypothesis. Um, what, what would you say to that, uh, Jim? Most science is merely a hypothesis. <laughs> uh, 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 the one thing you learn if you're a true scientist is there are no certainties. It's all a matter of probabilities. But I do remember that there was a wonderful paper in, I think, Nature, uh, looking at um, algal blooms giving off DMS, yeah. which then seeded... Um, cloud formation, which then cut the amount of sunlight um, and so reduced the amount of algal growth and it was a, 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 a bloom growth in the, in the ocean. Uh, and it was a lovely example of a, of a Gaian feedback mechanism. So even if you dismiss it, it must surely have been an enormous stimulus for Earth system science research. Well, indeed, I think it's true to say there was no such thing as Earth system science before Gaia came on the scene. In fact, Earth, the first mention of Earth system science wasn't until sometime about 1980. So do, you, do you think it, you made a mistake calling it Gaia because it was too catchy? And if you <laughs> called it something boring, the scientists would have been more accepting. Well, Bill Golding <laughs> was a Nobel Prize-winning author, and he wrote some wild, wonderful books like the, the Lord of the Flies. Uh, and he lived in my village and was a friend of mine. And he was the one that suggested the word Gaia, not me. No, it's a great... I, I, I don't dispute it. I, I <laughs> what would you do if, I think, if, uh, you know, if you've got such a word? It was the wrong market, you know. You yeah. should have been thinking about um, uh, the, the kind of the, the sort of rather grim-faced scientific establishment. They certainly got we up can't their call it Gaia theory, yes. I can just yeah. hear them uh, harumphing yeah. about it. Let's have another question from the, the audience here. Well, we've got the gentleman here again. Although there's a, there's a new questioner over here, but I suppose we'll, we'll fit you in first, okay, since the microphone's passing by. So here we are. Thank you. Um, what's your current views on fracking and uh, nuclear energy, please? Oh, well, that, that's uh, a, a more kind of local one, isn't it? It's a local um, one affecting uh, places like America and Britain um, and Europe, parts of Europe too. I th you see, because my, my personal view is because people are so stupid as to have rejected nuclear energy and I can understand why they feel guilty about that, the use of that extraordinary gift from the universe of a utterly 
unperturbing carbon-free source of energy. Uh, in, instead of using that as a source to, to, to run our civilization, we chose to use nuclear energy for war. Well, I mean, it's a good thing to feel guilty about. So, we can't have nuclear energy because people are frightened of it. No, not for any good reason, purely just superstitious fear. So, you've got to have something else. Um, you can't burn coal, you can't burn oil. So, what are you going to burn? One of the few things you can burn is methane. Now, methane does put CO2 in the air, but less than, considerably less than half as much as burning coal. So, this is at least um, a partial solution to the problem. And how, how do you get the methane? Well, if you live in this country, you import it from abroad. We don't have any great supplies of it. And the North Sea supplies are drying up fairly fast. So we can get it by fracking, which is you know, going down into the shale rocks and uh, extracting it there. This has certainly worked wonders in America. Um, we were forced to live, leave our Devon home for one time uh, for a few couple of years or so recently to stay in America during the winter because the cost of heating in America was about one-tenth the cost here because what the Americans had ample methane, we didn't. I must say that fracking, it's, a, it's, a, it's an awful word, isn't it? Thinking it. Now, if only Bill Golding had been around to... Uh, <laughs> it might have been a whole different story. And You're of course, so right, Roger. <laughs> I, the, 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 the choice of words is se semiotics. Well, <laughs> in fact, you've also reminded me of a, of a moment. I think I met you at a Cheltenham Science Festival many years ago, and um, you declared that you'd be quite happy to take nuclear waste and bury it in your back garden, and you couldn't really see what the, the fuss was about. I'm probably horribly paraphrasing it, but. No, you're absolutely right. And I stick by that. When we lived in Devon, we did have quite a bit of land, about 40 acres. Uh, and uh, it was a kind of disused farm, if you like. Um, the, I would have happily buried uh, the full output of any of the nuclear power stations uh, <coughs> annually and used it for free home heating. <laughs> <laughs> Are your neighbours still talking to you? We don't have any neighbours. <laughs> Uh, let's have another question over here. Good evening. My name is... You, you, it is working, yes. Um, my name is Jerry Hurst. <coughs> I'm a fierce defender of Gaia. I have your 2009 book here. And I get very cross when I see programs by the likes of the wonderful David Attenborough, who warns us about the collapse of the universe... Um, as we know it, and I'm defending you against David Attenborough, which is a very dangerous thing to do. <laughs> However, um, in all of that, how do you manage to get through all the politics and the economics to come up with such brilliant concepts of our future in the way it the universe adjusts itself? And why doesn't anybody else believe you? Oh dear, that I don't know. One just keeps soldiering on. I think is the is the is the only answer I can give you. Uh, I find, despite my age, life extraordinarily interesting, and I think the secret of it mainly is to have something to look forward to. And if you've an interest in science and the way the world's going, it's always throwing up something new and interesting, and that that's more than enough for me. And to fight for Gaia is worth it. Let's have another... But thank you very much for your support. Shall we have another question from the audience? And there's a hand up just over there. I hope I'm not missing someone out on this side, sorry. Hello, good evening. I'd like to know your views on climate change in regards to food production cycles and feeding populations. Climate change and uh, with respect to food production cycles, uh, Jim, and, and feeding the world population. That's a very important question, I think. Uh, it, it is not talked about enough. Uh, the thing that worries me in all of this thing, that this affair with climate change and so on, 
we don't know enough about the Earth yet and what controls the climate. Uh, until we do, until we understand the climate of the ocean as well as we understand the climate of the atmosphere, we probably won't. But we are very dependent on the climate for the food production, as you rightly say, uh, around the world. Agricultural science improves its techniques, but there are limits. And I think we're probably already approaching the limit of how far we can push vegetation to do the, do the job. Maybe I'm wrong, I'm being pessimistic, I, I don't know. But it's certainly an area to worry about quite a lot. And do you think, um, is there a, some claim that if, we, if you look at, say, China moving away from a more vegetarian diet to eating a more Western, that, that, that is a huge, having a huge impact in lots of different ways, isn't it? You're, you're absolutely right, Roger, but it's not only that. We're completely mad as a species. And <laughs> a little while ago, they were even talking about uh, turning maize, vegetable crops, into fuel, biofuels, instead of using it for food. I mean, this sort of thing, if we're crazy enough to do that, uh, uh, then uh, all, all bets are off, really. <laughs> Let's have one more question from the audience, and then I think we'll, we'll move to the signing. Here we are, the gentleman over here. Yeah. If in the future we turn into information, would that still be called life? Sorry? If in the future we indeed are turned into information, we become information, we're datafied, would we still be called life? Would that still be life? Or how would, would you define that? Would, if, if, we're, if, 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 Jim, if I, if I um, convert you into uh, in pure information in a computer, would, would you still count as a living creature? That's a very interesting question. I cannot answer that one. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's outrageous. You've stumped the great James Lovelock, the final question. Um, brilliant questions. Thank you so much. And, um, you know, I can't... Uh, we've just barely touched the surface of a career with 200 papers um, since the first one in 1942, You've got seven decades of research. Gaia, an extraordinary, call him a, a maverick, if you will. Uh, call him an iconoclast, but he is pretty amazing, I think, any way you look at it. I think a big hand of applause for Jim.